some time of the year, and this sort of seemed to fit well with his sabbatical. So I was praying for quite a while on what to do this series upon. Um, there's many different options, obviously, I could choose. And uh, I'll just introduce the series, and we're going to do like an introduction today, and then, it's, and then I'm going to slowly progress on to an act- the actual sermon. So bear with me, because it will make sense. I'm sure you will get me as we go through. So the uh, title for this series is Facing Adversity. Have we got up on the screen? We'll assume we'll... I'll carry on anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is my first and first. Facing... I'll carry on anyway. I'm sure it will come up. We're going to be talking about facing adversity, learning the qualities of kingship within the Psalms. And, and I find it really interesting, like uh, Mike preached on the Psalm uh, last week, and I preached on the Psalm, another Psalm 24 in August, and I thought, well, maybe this is something which God is leading us into, trying to come to grips with the Psalms a bit better as a church. And if you were here in August, you would have remembered me saying that one of the power of the Psalms is the fact that some of the Psalms have stories behind them, the reasons why they were made. And that really kind of captured me, and I thought, well, that's a really fantastic idea for a series. Why, not, why don't we go through the lives of three kings, all through the eyes of David, but in the form of the Psalms. So, because of that, we're going to be studying the lives of three kings. We're studying the lives of Saul, Absalom, and David. Brilliant. You keep on for a bit. We're going to be studying the lives of these uh, three particular kings, but we're going to be doing it all through the eyes of David. And I, maybe when you remember when I started my other preach the other time, I kind of gave an illustration. And I'll try to do that now. I won't repeat myself, but it's kind of like this. I don't know if anyone is familiar with the really famous uh, war poet Wilfred Owen. I'm sure we, a lot of us know of him. I'm hope, I don't see anyone nodding, but I hope we do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can learn about World War I, you can learn about these different things, but when you read his poetry, it makes it come alive, doesn't it? You, you're basically there in the trenches with him, and you see all the tragedies and the horrific bits that there's war, and that it all includes. And because you know the story behind the actual poem, the poem becomes so much more powerful. And that's the reason we want to do today. We want to understand not just the Psalms, but we want to understand the stories behind the Psalms. So we're going to be looking at four Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 57, which we're going to be doing today, which is David and Saul. We, next week we're going to be looking at uh, David and Absalom, which will be Psalm 3. week after we'll be looking at David and David, which is uh, Psalm 51. Fourth week, we're going to be looking at another psalm, probably that maybe some of us aren't aware, but it's actually at the end of 2 Samuel, and most Bibles, it's entitled The Last Words of David. And that's kind of, a, that's kind of a summary of his life. And how from that do we, what can we learn from his life? Now, adversity is an interesting subject because we all face it in certain times in our lives. Maybe we're going through something now, or maybe life is going good. But I just want to tell you a story to sort of set the scene, this is a true story, and it will help us as we begin our series today. So David Riva, this man called David Riva, was a uh, soldier in Vietnam, and he was stationed just inside, actually he was stationed quite far inside the enemy lines, right near the Cambodian border. And one time when he was uh, flown in and he was there, and amongst the mayhem of the fire, he saw this white phosphorus grenade. So he went to the grenades in order to pick it up to throw it back at the enemy's bunker. (coughs) 
But as he grabbed the grenade to throw it, as it was six inches from his face, it exploded. It took off 40% of his skin and 60 pounds worth of flesh. In such agony, he looked down and half his face was on the floor and he couldn't see his chest. The burning was so horrific that he decided to throw himself into a river in order to take away the pain and see if he could ease the flames, but it didn't work. Consequently, they radioed in a helicopter and it came in, it took him and it lowered down a stretcher and as the stretcher came down, it put him on it, but actually, because he was still on fire, the stretcher caught on fire and dropped him back down. Unbelievably, they managed to get him out and he actually survived. And eventually they flew him to a hospital in the States where he was recovering. <coughs> and he sat in his bed, covered in burns, complete agony. And he looked beside him and there was this other man that was also completely burnt, almost from head to toe. And as he was looking at this man, this man's wife came in. And David was looking at him. And this man's wife came in and she came in and she took a few steps forward and she looked at him and she took off her wedding ring and she put it on the table beside him. And she said, you're an embarrassment. I can't be seen down the street with you. And with that, she walked out the door. She left him. And David witnessing all this, thought, what is my wife going to think when she sees me? He's blind in, in his right eye, deaf in his right ear. He's disfigured, burnt. And at the moment, he just wondered, what on earth is going to happen to my life? Where is God in this? And although, as I say, we're going to come to a series on adversity, we can't really understand how it must feel like to be in his shoes. But at every point of our lives, we'd all ask the same question, I'm sure. Where is God in this? Where is God in all that's going on in my life, in this situation? How am I going to get through it? And that's why I think adversity is a really great topic for us to look at today and for this series. So let's move on to Psalm 57. But Psalm 57 needs an introduction. If you're anything like me, when you read biographies or novels, you don't bother reading an introduction because it's a waste of time. I remember one time I tried to do it with Lord of the Rings <coughs> and I read it and it just took me so long I couldn't even bother with the rest of the book and I'm still reading it and that's ten years ago. So, you know, although I am on the second one so I'm kind of steadily getting through. But let's just try and understand the backgrounds to uh, the story of uh, Psalm 57. So we're in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. And uh, when I preached on Daniel, I said Daniel was my most favourite book of the Bible, but actually it is. But uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are also really interesting books. And the reason they're really interesting is because it's the end of the series where the judges were judging Israel, and it's where the time where the kings came in. Yeah, we'll get to that bit in a minute. <clears throat> so let's just try and do like a whistle-stop movement, if you like, a tour of, of uh, David's life until we get to our bit today. So if you go back, if you start in uh, uh, 1 Samuel, in chapters 13 and 15, you'll learn that David, uh, that Saul is the king at the time, but he gets rejected by God, basically, in a nutshell, because he disobeys God. And God says a really great line, I'm going to give your throne to someone whose heart is fully committed to me. 
Well, then, if you go to the next chapter, in chapter 16, David comes on the scene. And this is maybe a bit of a story that we're a bit used to. You know, God goes through all the brothers. Uh, no, Samuel goes through all the brothers, and God directs him. And eventually, he gets to David, and, and God says, yeah, this is the one I want you to anoint as king. So Samuel anoints him, but then he leaves. David, if you read it, it's really interesting when I read it last time. I was like, well, when David was anointed a king, did he go up and get his throne straight away? No. No, he didn't. He just literally stayed there. He went back to do his day job in the wilderness, and he waited. Then if you move into the, move into the next chapter, chapter 17, we get to probably one of the, the best and the most loved stories of the Bible, David and Goliath, and I'm sure we all know that story. And David de- defeats Goliath. But on his way back home, ironically, from all the victory that happens, he gets home, and you would have thought everyone would be joyful, and they are. But it says this line in it says this line in um, in the chapter for God. Oh, no, it's not no. Yeah, in chapter eighteen, verse seven, God has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So the people were chanting for David rather than for Saul. And from this moment on, Saul becomes really angry with David, and basically he sets out to kill him because he's threatening his throne. And then we see David going through all these different trials. And actually, in chapter 19, Saul actually tries to kill him. But David just escapes. And then leads us into chapter 22, which is where we come to this morning. Saul was after David's life. He threatens his throne. He threatens everything from his family. It's not just his throne. It's the fact that it will, his lineage won't be coming. And David comes onto the scene but he runs from Saul because he's a fugitive. The threats of Saul cause him to run, and he runs, and he's a fugitive for up to 10 to 12 years in the wilderness. 10 to 12 years, what a long time it is as a fugitive. And he must have been thinking so many different things within that time. And there's this point where he gets to this cave as he's hiding from Saul. And Saul's sending out all his men, scattering throughout all the land of Israel, trying to find him. And as he's in this cave... He writes the Psalm 57, or it was maybe written later, but it was to reflect how he was feeling. So let's just read, if we read the actual narrative in, uh, one, in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 to 2, excuse if there's any typos. <clears throat> David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down to him and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And this great time of anguish and distress and anxiety, where not just his life, but he's got the lives of 400 other men with him, he comes and he writes this amazing psalm that we're coming to today. So let's read it together. Psalm 57. But most of all our texts that we're going to be doing this morning is going to be taken from Psalm 57. So it's great if you've got your Bibles have in front of you. If you don't, then lift up your hand and we'll get one to you. But let's read it together. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. 
I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is the great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Yes, Lord. What amazing piece of writing that he writes in the most time of his trouble and distress. So in order to come up with like a theme, there's many things we could write, we could think about for adversity, but in order to make life a little bit easier, I thought we'd just come up with a heading for this today, and it's steadfast. Remaining steadfast in adversity, if you like, it could be the title for today, if you wanted to give it a title. And often when, you know, when Peter preaches, he says, if you see a therefore, you see why it's therefore. And often when you see something repeated in Scripture so many times, like steadfast, you kind of got to ask questions. Is what does it mean? And what is its relevance? Why put it there in the first place? So let's try and understand what it means, steadfast, and how this can relate to adversity. What does steadfast actually mean? Well... Steadfast literally means fixed or found anchorage, a place of rest. David remained steadfast and held on to God in faith and in trust. And that leads me to my first principle today, is that in adversity, faith, faith becomes real. What do I mean by this? Well, I hope to make it more clear as we go on. But ultimately, adversity can lead to two different roads, if you think about it. It can either lead to a road that leads you closer to God, or it can lead to a road that takes you further away from God. And ultimately, the determining factor as to what determines what road adversity takes us is basically what do we actually believe about God? What do we actually believe about him? Do we believe that he is faithful? Or do we believe that he just disregards us? Do we believe that he is love? Or do we believe that he doesn't care about us? Do we believe that he has compassion or he's not bothered? Do we believe that he is close or do we believe that he is distant? And to put into, into today's terms, you could, also, you could basically say the question would be, what did David believe about God that made him steadfast in God. Well, the first thing we read in verse 1 is that God is merciful, he's gracious and compassionate. 
Sorry. <coughs> and if God is therefore gracious and compassionate, he's not far from us. You know, I think often when we go through hard times in life and we think of being in the pit, we can often think of that we're in this time where we're struggling, but yet God is up there above us saying, you know, you're doing well, just keep on going. I'm with you. I will be look after you. But actually, a better analogy would be that God actually climbs down into the pit with you and actually works things through with you. And what better example do we see that as Jesus himself, one of the greatest adversity that we face, namely being distant from God and being, t- and being affected by sin and being taken away by a relationship to God, and that Jesus came down. And not only did he come down in the sense that he came to forgive us our sins and bring us close to God, but he actually endured, every, he endured everything that we could think of. He faced adversity himself. Even though he was God, he decided to come down. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, how does that give us great assurance and relief that he was tempted in every way that we are? I reckon that's the most, one of the most amazing things we can say about God is that he came down and he knew what it was like to be man. David believed that God was gracious and compassionate. What else did he believe? He believed that God keeps his promise, verse 2. But not only does he keep his promise, but he has a purpose for our lives. You can create something like a painting that doesn't really serve any purpose, but it's just for the sake of creating it. But if you create something for a purpose, it has intended meanings, doesn't it? There's, some, there's a reason for it. You can imagine David at this time must have been thinking, oh God, like, how could this be? You asked me, you said, you anointed me, that Lord, that I was going to be king over all this nation, and yet I'm running from Saul. And yet I'm can't face the day. I've got all these people behind me and yet I can't even wake up barely to even face them. But yet you promised me this was going to happen. And he had a purpose for him. And I think sometimes also that relates to us. That sometimes we maybe have had dreams or maybe have visions or words spoken over our lives. And sometimes they don't come to fruition and we wonder what on earth is going on. You know, David had to spend 10 to 12 years in the desert before he actually took his throne as king. And sometimes for us, in order for us to reach the oasis of God's purpose and promise for our lives, we have to walk through the desert. It's meant to be desert at the end of that. (laughs) We have to walk through it. We have to endure it. We have to believe that God keeps his promises has God told you a promise? Have you forgotten what, maybe the promise that he gave you? Maybe it's not just you. Maybe it's for your family. Maybe it's for you as a husband and wife. Maybe it's for you and your work. Do you remember like the day you got married and the promises you made to each other? And you believe that God had a purpose. Have you lost sight maybe of the purpose that God had for you? David believed that God keeps his promises. Next thing that David believed is that God is love and is always faithful. (laughs) 
that God's love was an anchor on which, could not, on which he could have his full confidence and rest in, and God's faithfulness is never shaken. He believed that God's love was stronger than anything else, an anchor that could not be moved. And interestingly, we can actually find this same term actually in Exodus 34, 6, and it kind of reiterates this, but it kind of adds a few more attributes of God, just kind of make it a bit more stronger. It says uh, that God, it says that God is, he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and forgiveness of sin. He, he knew God's love was never changing. He knew God's love was firm. And why did I entitle this all within the bit that faith, it makes faith real? Why? Because when we, at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, we can believe these things, but they never actually come into our minds, really, until we actually go through times where things are put to the test, do they? We can believe that God is love. We can believe that God is faithful. But when your loved one is dying, or your child is sick, how do we feel then? Even though it's hard to believe these things, David still believed them about God, and we're still called to believe them, that God is still faithful, even in the times when we struggle. During the terrible days of the Blitz, a father holding his small son by the hand ran from a building that had been struck by a bomb. In the front yard was a shell hole. Seeking shelter as quickly as possible, the father jumped into the hole and held up his arms for his son to follow. Terrified, Yet hearing his father's voice telling him to jump, the boy replied, I can't see you. The father, looking up against the sky, tinted red by the burning buildings, called to the silhouette of his son, but I can see you. Jump. The boy jumped because he trusted his father. The Christian faith enables us to face life or meet death, not because we can see, but with the certainty that we are seen. Not that we know all the answers, but that we know we are known. And I think that's fantastic, that little line. We know, we're not going to know the answers, but we know that we're known. Not that we can always see the end results, but that we know that we are seen by God. Second principle is that adversity should lead us to pray. If we scroll down the, the psalm that we're reading today, we get to the bit where David is talking about the steadfast love of God and he talks suddenly about himself. And interestingly, when you look at it, when talking about God, he uses that God's love is steadfast. But when he talks about himself, he uses something, doesn't say my love is steadfast for you. He uses his heart. Now, if you were here like in August, you'd have heard me sort of expound what the Bible means when it talks about the heart. But ultimately, it encompasses the whole personality our thinking, our feeling, our will and desire. In other words, not just about the minds, but it's our conscience and our will as well. Everything that David had was focused on God. It was steadfast, it was anchored to God, welded to God's anchor, if you want to look at it like that. 
Perhaps, but perhaps the most fascinating thing when I was going through this uh, psalm, when I was thinking, how am I going to bring it to everybody today, is that when in this psalm and other psalms and uh, literature within the Bible, sometimes words are kind of used interchangeably or the meanings are quite similar. And the words soul and heart are very similar and they're basically depicting the same thing, our innermost being. And when we look at that, we can actually look at this psalm in a different light. If you go on to the next slide... We can look at it like this. That in verse 1, <coughs> when it talks about the soul, David trusts in the Lord. Verse 4, soul is among the lions. He's in distress. Verse 6, soul is bowed down. He's in anguish. And verse 7, my heart is steadfast. I have confidence. And I think when I read this, I thought, how fantastic is that? That our God is not just a God who says, well, you are meant to have steadfast, your eyes fixed on me, you're just meant to walk around with a smile on your face. And often people seem to think that to have confidence in God through trials means that we have to walk around with a smile on our face and pretend that everything's okay. But actually in the midst of David being steadfast with God, he was also feeling in distress. He was also in states of anguish. He was finding things tough. There was an honesty in his prayers and an honesty in his thought that he wanted to give to God. And I think that should bring comfort to us. That maybe you believe these things that we've been saying. I believe God is love. I believe God is comfort. But I still feel low at times. I still feel like I can't carry on. Well, so did David. But his hope, his love was still steadfast on God. His heart was still steadfast. And it's meant to move us to pray. And I love the way uh, Jonathan put it the other week. I think he said it like this. If he didn't, then I'm going to give him the credit anyway. But he said this. He said, pray to God with words. When you can't use words, use tears. When you can't use tears, use silence. And God hears the cries of the heart. That hit me when he said that. I thought, wow, yeah. My heart is steadfast. Even when I can't move God, my heart is steadfast. The next principle, adversity should lead to worship. <clears throat> See, the remainder of the psalm is basically an exaltation to God. It's saying how great God is, and it's moving from himself to God. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, which is quite harsh and to the point, but true. That worship is not dependent on our feelings. It's not. And sometimes we think it is. We think, I don't really feel like worshipping to God today. And we say, okay, I understand why you don't feel like it. But the question that I would pose to you, or that I think David would probably say, is that, is God worthy to be worshipped? Is he worthy? In amongst your trials and your tribulations and all the things that you face, is he worthy? If the answer is yes, which I'm sure most of us here today would say, then he deserves our worship. Often we give our worship to God when things are going right in life rather than they're not. Do you know the hardest time for me to lead worship is when I've had an argument with Candice before I come to church? <laughs> She's smiling there. But yeah, I remember those. They happen often. It's the hardest time because I don't want to worship. I don't feel like worshipping. But actually, worship shouldn't be dependent on our feelings. It's not to disregard and say that your feelings, they matter, because God knows that. 
but it's to say that God is worthy of it. God is far greater than us. And actually, by worshipping him, we actually grow closer to him and that our problems and our concerns actually do, don't fade away, but they kind of come under the umbrella and the security of God. And that leads me to my, the final principle, I would say, that adversity, about adversity this morning, is that adversity leads, leads to giving God glory. It says there at the end of the, it's of the end of the exhortations that glory would be given to God. Adversity is glory. We pray, we worship. Why? So it would give God glory. Why? Because he is God and we are not. And if we believe these things that we're saying that God is love and compassion, then God is with us through all our trials, through things that we face. You know, spoke at the beginning about David Reaver. There's an end to that story. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, cool. (coughs) David Reaver was lying in his hospital bed. His body was covered in burns. He was disfigured. He wondered about his wife. He felt like giving up. He didn't want to go on anymore. Well, this is so awesome, but a few years earlier, he gave his life to God. And at that time, he wanted to renew his trust in Jesus, whatever may come. Whatever may his wife say, whatever faced him. A door opened and Brenda came through the door, his wife. And she took a look at him. And she walked closer to him. And he was just getting so anxious that time. And she knelt down to him. And she kissed whatever was left of his forehead. And he said to her, I'm so sorry, Brenda, I'm so sorry. And she said, what are you sorry about? And he said, I'm sorry, I'll never be able to look good for you ever again. She knelt down and she looked at him and she said, Davy, you were never that good looking anyhow. (laughs) And she kissed his forehead again. She said, I want you to know how much I love you. Welcome home. Years later, David was standing at a Billy Graham event, standing before a packed crowd and giving his testimony, including all that happened to him at Vietnam. And he said these words, which I think are really relevant for us today. I can tell you that, in, that I can tell you that was the most incredible days of my life. While my body was tormented with pain and my soul was troubled, my ever-living spirit was alive in Jesus Christ. And the greatest days in my life have been spent since that day that I found out that God can take your greatest tragedy and turn it into your greatest triumph. I think what a fantastic thing for us to be, for us to think about today. Your tragedy may, your tragedy, your adversity may be today, must be maybe something small, but it's big to you. And ultimately, we think of adversity, and it can come in maybe like three different areas. It can come with like the area of the outsiders, if you like, through friends and through society. Or it can come through family, or it can come through ourselves. And we all face adversities and different things that are going on in our life. And maybe we've asked these questions, do you still have a purpose for me? 
Where are you in the midst of this, God? Because I believe you are these, but I don't see you. I want to eventually do a, a response to that, but I, also, I really felt compelled that not to just talk about us in a sense, but to reach out and talk about the church. Let's just think of the church for, a, for, a, for a moment and think, what adversities does the church face from outsiders? Does the church do, do we have adversity? Well, of course we do. There's many different things that the church face. You may not be going through adversity now, and if you're not, that's fantastic, but you can think about this. What does the church go through in adversity? I just want to read you a quick article I got this uh, in the Christianity magazine for this month. And for those who don't know, um, Russia has put a ban on evangelism. And I just want to read you this bit here, what it says here. The country recently passed legislation banning the public from discussing their faith outside of church buildings. The rules were contained in anti-terror laws and make it illegal to preach, teach or share faith outside state-controlled settings. Donald Oswald, a Baptist minister, was working in the city of Oriel when he was visited by police. They accused him of unlawfully conducting missionary activity by holding Christian meetings at his home. Mr Oswald was fined £450 after being advised by a state lawyer to, to plead guilty and not to appeal. A statement from those personal legal team said the problem is not the fine, but the fact that the court decided that Donald's exercise of his right to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ according to his belief is an illegal action. Donald's was arrested in his own home, where the policeman came and established the fact that a group was meeting with him for prayer and Bible reading, which they say is illegal. And this is this month, and this is going on around the world. We face adversity as a church. Can we ask the same questions then? As a church, are we praying for these people? Are we praying against adversities that are going to be coming against us? That are facing us today? A friend of mine, she lived in Geneva, and she decided to do her master's degree on, um, her master's uh, dissertation on a Christian response to euthanasia because, as you know, in Switzerland, it's legal. And the reason she did so was because she knew that when she came back to England, because they were coming back, they were going to have, there was going to be a time where the church is going to have to face questions by society, by other, other factors of this, our culture. And she wanted to be prepared. And I think it's important that we look at this and say, as the church faces adversity, are we, as David David said earlier, like the guy in Parliament, are we just this weak, feeble puppy, or are we this roaring lion that is the church that needs to take up our position within society by believing what we believe, by holding God true to his words, by believing God is faithful, God is love, by believing that we don't know all the answers, but that's not what Christianity is about. It's not about finding answers as such, although you will find answers to certain things. It's about giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is not called to survive. The church is called to thrive. And we need to make sure that as the people of God, we're not just surviving as a church, but we're thriving I just want to give two. I just want to give a couple of minutes 
just to sort of if, in, in silence, if we just lift up, if you want to lift up your prayer vocally or in your heart, whichever, if we could just bring out the church to God in the face of adversity, that we would remain strong. If we could just do that, and then afterwards, I'm just going to pray for those people who feel led by what I've said earlier. So let's just pray. I'll lead us in prayer, and then if anyone wants to continue on, you can. God, I thank you that you love the church. I thank you that you believe in the church. I thank you, Lord, that we are the body of Christ. And we will face many adversities in life through society. But when we be united to you, Lord God, that the things that happen all over the world, that we would come out strong. Just in times, Lord, when the Reformation happened and there was a stirring within Europe and that adversity made the church stronger, Lord, that as we face it, we would be stronger. We thank you, Lord God, and we ask for your power and your wisdom upon us as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord.
We just uh, remain in uh, with our eyes closed, maybe in prayer. Just want to ask the worship team to come back on stage. But maybe there's some of us here today, and some of this stuff has really hit home with you. Maybe you're going through a really tough time. Maybe God's saying to you, do you believe I'm still trustworthy? Do you believe that I'm still faithful? Maybe God's calling you to pray. Maybe God's calling you to worship when you find it hard to worship God in the midst of your times. Maybe you're God's saying, come to me, this is time Worship me because I'm worthy. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't really believe in God. Maybe they think God is not like, I don't believe, I don't see in this world. 
I don't see that God is faithful when you look at the world. If that's the case, then that's understandable questions that we ask. But God, I believe, that is capable of answering those questions and walking you through those questions. Don't keep it to yourself. Come and ask them. Ask anybody of us in this church. I'm sure we'll be happy to talk about God to you. But one thing I just want to leave you with is this, is that you know, the thing that people always says, we are responsible for our, for our response. And we need to respond. Whether it's through prayer, whether it's through worship, whether it's through writing it down, as David's done. We need to respond. Maybe there's us today who have hard times in our marriage, hard time at work. And you say, yeah, God, I need you. I believed you had a purpose for me, but I've, it's run out. I don't see it. I'm still in the desert. I haven't reached the oasis. If that's you, I just want to ask you in this time, just come forward for prayer. Make a response to God. If you can't come forward for any reason and you just, or you feel uncomfortable, then put up your hand or ask someone next to you to pray for you. Don't let this time pass by. Just another verse for us to think on these points. In Proverbs 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you.